They tried to stop my shine, but it's my twentieth episode, mother. Tokyo boy. Hey, twentieth show. Oh, what you know? What you know? It's Craig's twentieth show. What you know? What you know? I said nineteen plus one. We finna have lots of fun. Fifteen plus five, shit. You know I'm all the way live, shit. Seventeen plus three, huh? You know I gotta be me, ha. Eighteen plus two, well, I owe it all to you. Hey, what's up, everybody? Twentieth show. What's up, everybody? Twentieth show. Welcome, 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 welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into popular culture for the 20th time. I am your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I've been writing about pop culture for more than 20 years now. Uh, you can read some of my music writing at rnbeing.com. That's rnbeing.com. I'm also an author who has written a number of books. You got the biography of the god, Luther Vandross, called Luther, the Life and Longing of Luther Vandross, which is available in your print. Available in your ebook and available in your audiobook. And I just got a nice Twitter message from somebody that said they were really enjoying the audiobook. That means a lot to me personally because I was, even though I didn't read the audiobooks, I didn't feel nobody felt like hearing Luther all in my voice. But, um, I executive produced it, and that was the first shit I owned on my own, because I owned the audio rights for that, so that was my first black-owned shit, you know. The print stuff was still owned by the mans, but I own that shit, I own that audio shit, so I'm proud of that as a motherfucker. So if you listen to the audiobook, even though it ain't me, don't think, you know, whatever, I'm fucking proud of that, because that's me, executive produced, black-owned, black, all-black everything. Anyway, I am also the author of the a memoir, the memoir about um or a memoir. I guess that, I don't know another one. Maybe there is. I'm not trying to be ran like that. A memoir about being a grad school stripper hoe called All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. And I've also written a novel about three generations of black gay men looking for love called Who's Your Daddy? That's also available, both that and All I Could Bear, available in your print, in your ebook, and in your audiobook. And I actually read um, All I Could Bear and I read Who's Your Daddy, which I'm also proud of because I executive produced that shit. I own that shit and I read that shit. So anyway, and then I'm the author of the forthcoming, sorry if that made noise, I had to adjust my reading glasses, a man of a particular age, you know how it is. Um, I'm the author of the forthcoming special, The Life and Art of Janet Jackson, coming soon. And in fact, I will give you a very important update about the book next week. So please stay tuned for the 21st show, for the legal ass show, 21st show, right? Um, and I have a website where you can find links for the stuff I talk about on the show because I'd be throwing out a lot of stuff, links and whatnot. And you can go to my website. It's very easy to remember. It's just craigspoplife.com. All right. Um, I also have an Amazon shop where I put all the books and other things that I discuss on the podcast and just including just random shit that's important to your mans, like my favorite hot sauces and things like that. And that's very easy to remember, too. It's Amazon.com slash shop slash Craig's Pop Life. You know, I try to keep it simple. Shit. Um, and something new in the shop this week that many of you all might be interested in, um, as you may or may not know, Janet Jackson is re-releasing all of her albums from Control to All For You on vinyl. And I've put together all the pre-order links for all the albums so it's convenient. You don't have to go but more than one place. Um, and I also went through, you know, Amazon sells used vinyl too. So I also went through and found, you know, some good price, rare stuff, some classics, some remixes and stuff so it's all in a whole um what you call like a whole list just called janet on vinyl so enjoy that at amazon.com slash shop slash craig's pop life and as always i appreciate your support i appreciate your support on that but i just appreciate everybody's support it's my 20th motherfucking show i didn't even know what i was doing when i started i don't even know what i'm doing now but i know that there were people that were rocking with me from the very first show and i know that some of those same people that were rocking with me from the very first show was the people that have been rocking with me since i've been writing 
this is I was writing the Craig's Pop Life letter, and been, and I appreciate y'all so much. And please believe, I don't know what I can do if I, there was a word. If I, I mean, I just, I don't even have words to say, to say how much I appreciate your support from the very beginning. Y'all riding with me, and I also appreciate everybody else to come on. If it's your first time, whatever, enjoy, share with a friend. I'm here for y'all, and I appreciate y'all allowing me into your ears and just to be here. So. How's everybody's week going this week? I hope everybody's been getting their good summer in. Um, I'm actually not at home and where I am. Well, I never do it from home, but um, I hope that's not making no noise. It probably is. But um, the light isn't good. So if I seem a little bit more scattered than usual, it's because I can't read my notes because the light ain't good and I don't have a lamp. And so it's just going to have to be what it has to be. But I actually had a good night out. I, I mean, I, I really call myself like a workaholic and stuff like that, but I... I mean, because I enjoy what I do and I feel like there's a purpose behind what I do in terms of, you know, me chronicling black music, in terms of me, um, you know, chronicling black gay life and stuff like that. Like, that's a, that's what I feel like I'm a purpose. So I don't really feel like I'm a workaholic, but I do work seven days a week and I don't barely go out. I think the last time I really went out was like February. Um, so I went out last weekend and it was fun. You know, I live in South Beach, so my neighborhood bar is Twist on Washington at 11th. And if y'all have been, um, in that area and actually Twist, you know, and probably one of the reasons I live down there, honestly, from all the visits, Twist is one of my all time favorite clubs, not necessarily for the music, which could include more hip hop. If y'all listen to the last podcast, y'all know what I'm talking about. And not for the drinks, but the drinks do be consistently right. Um, Not just for the many hot shirtless bartenders and the built-in strip club on site. Okay? Uh, You know, I I mean... I can't, I can't party if there's no strip of go-go, but like, don't even invite me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Um, and not just for the fact that because it's a tourist location, we, you always see new faces. I'm a man that needs novelty. I need to be looking at the new, new, you know what I'm saying? It's not always about, I'm not really a, cause I'm a man of a particular age. I'm not really of the ch- tender. I don't want to just be swiping. I want to be actually looking and looking from different and not just looking at what you put in front of me on some pictures. I need to be looking at angles. I need to be seeing it from the front i need to be seeing it from the back i need to be seeing it high up i need to be seeing it dipping low i'm just one of those people that still you know need to connect with people on the visual you hear i'm here type level so i love that and um just basically because it's like seven separate bars in one so you can move around because that's pretty much my criteria for going out um i need to migrate like Mimi once said with T-Pain, you know, I need to keep it moving, bounce, hey, keep it moving, bounce, hey. You know, that's my going out anthem. Because I need to move, I need to hit a bar, then I need to see what's going on at the next bar, have me another drink, and then see what's popping at the other bar, repeat until about four or something. That's just my situation. And that's kind of why, um, you know, a lot of times I go to cities and I don't, you know, and it'd just be like one club that we'd be going to and like I could even be having a good time. But I'm like, well, you know, must be something going on in another place. So, I mean, the only thing that's different is like I said, when I lived in Providence, um, Rhode Island, Providence is one of them towns that like everybody be at the one club. So and it's not like a tourist place. So you're not seeing nobody. Ain't nobody anywhere else. Everybody here. So that was OK. And also the club that I used to like there. I can't even remember the name of it because it closed. What's the name of the club? Um, something. But anyway, it had like a upstairs, downstairs, and whatever. Like I literally, like I really need to move throughout a locale, and that's why I don't hate. I mean, that's why I don't like going out with my friends in New York these days. Cause bitch, by the time we get from one spot to the next, I don't care if we taking the train with the pole dancing rats, or if we Uber accent, or if we Uber pooling and something like that. By the time we get from one spot to the next, I have lost my good ass, high ass priced. New York City buzz, you know, my Brooklyn buzz, whatever the whatever the borough may be. Because um, it just takes too long to get from place to place, you know. So, like, I like my shit, you know, I just like to move or in, in a particular location or if I'm going from one club, then I need the proximity. I need the club to be close enough so that I haven't lost my buzz from the last club. That's basically my criteria in terms of distance. If the club, if it takes too long so that... You know, I'm going to be halfway straight by the time I get to the next club. So then I'm going to need to have a drink just to get back to my level of fucked up Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Nobody has time for that. Nobody got the money for that. So anyway, all that to say, 
you know, every now and then when I want to leave my own little environment, I head to Wilton Manors up in Fort Lauderdale way. Um, I used to like go for, when I first moved to South Beach, I used to go for little overnight stays just to have a little vacay and stuff like that. And stay in like some, just get like a little cheap room. You know how you go on the price line or something? Isn't that the one where you put in the price? Anyway, but then, you know, after a while, it was just too like bed buggy, too like, you know, people having fights in the next room and throwing shit and you be seeing bullet holes and it was too much. So actually, I just stopped doing the Fort Lauderdale cheap hotel thing. And now I just Uber pool there and back. It's very nice. You know, so I, the reason I'm saying that, you're like, why are you getting all into that? It's because I know a lot of y'all come down to, um, you know, to South Beach or whatever, and you have that, have fun, whatever. And it really is not a, especially if it's a group of y'all or even just, you know, a couple of y'all, it's really nothing just to Uber pool if you want to have one little night in Fort Lauderdale and just Uber pool back. I think that's the way to go as opposed to doing the whole hotel situation. And that way, you know, you can, I mean, the, the Fort Lauderdale hotel situation, that way you can, Get back to your own place, you know. And if you itching, it's not going to be because you itching from the hotel. It's going to be itching because you was up to something else. And I don't have anything to do with that. But um, anyway, so Wilton Manors is a whole bunch of clubs within a couple of blocks. And I'm not even going to lie. I have not been to most of them. I basically just go back and forth between the two strip clubs. Because that's just me. But hey, at least there are two strip clubs. A lot of cities don't have one strip club. So at least there's two strip clubs. And um. You know, and both give a different vibe. So there's Johnson's, and that's where you go for body. Okay, at Johnson's, you're going to get your muscles, you're going to get your abs. Sometimes you're going to get a face that goes along with it. You know, a lot of times you're going to get a face that goes along with it. But, you know, you, that's body, you know, and it's um it's pretty consistent. And honestly, the hottest guy at the club on Saturday night was this motherfucker that was working the door. Because I get there, and the door was a, the door line was a little bit longer than... um usual and i'm like what's all the jokes usually is it's um kind of quick but then when i got in i knew why because everybody was going like god damn that motherfucker's cute because he was really cute um a little bit more twinkish than the other dancers but he was like tight little body shirtless little peck tattoo anyway y'all are god when y'all figure out the point i'm finally making in this y'all gotta be like why is he going on and on but anyway i'm just trying to explain to you my situation um and I will be going back very soon just to walk through the goddamn door because that guy was cute. But the other thing I like about Johnson's is that it always has a very nice mixed audience. Like, I never feel like I'm the only black gay man in the spot, which can be the case in other places. You know, it's one of those rare. And it's also not like, it's not like, you know, it, it just feels very integrated. I think the club that it was before it was Johnson's was also kind of a, um, sort of spot that was known to be kind of like an integrated spot. So I think maybe it just carried over from that. I don't know, but I like that kind of vibe. Um, so I feel very comfortable there. And I don't know, other people may have their stories different, whatever, but that's always been my experience. So then after I get my good muscle fix, um, I hop in a good $5 Uber and head to the other strip club, which is called La Boy. Now, anybody that knows me, anybody that's hung with me, anybody that's had a conversation with me for more than five minutes about guys and whatever knows that I'm a man about twinks. That's my type. It is what it is. I'm speaking my truth. You live your truth. We can all get along, but I'm about the twinks. And um, so, you know, this is my kind of place. The interesting thing about Le Boy is that um, the crowd isn't always mixed. Like I would say the crowd there is generally mostly white mostly older and white, but um, the dancers are very mixed. So there's always, you know, white dancers, Latino dancers, black dancers, um, and all that kind of stuff, which in that in and of itself is a nice change for other strip clubs. So that's good. The drinks are good and strong. There's a little outdoor patio where the dancers, sometimes they shit the little cage where they can shower in. And most importantly, if you are my type of person, if you are if you strip club like I strip club, then you want to know about the VIPs. The VIPs are always popping there. I very much enjoy them. Um, again, that might not be everybody's experience. That might not be what everybody's looking for. That not, might not be what everybody found when they went there. Again, I consistently have a good time. And shout out to Franco. Anyway, if you're wondering why I am going on and on and on about Wilton Manors, while I was there, I found out that this group um, 
Miami Beach Brothers, and that's Brothers B-R-U-T-H-A-Z, is throwing a Wilton Manors weekend from July 18th through the 21st. And no, this is not a sponsorship. I do not know them. They are not giving me a dime. I'm just spreading this because I support black gay shit. And I, you know, think that it would probably be a nice weekend because the, the, the events they have planned for y'all that like to visit, you know, the South Florida area. They get got you a jacuzzi jump off, a boat cruise, a wet and wild pool party, a beachside lunch, a penthouse party, and more. And then each night of the weekend, there's a Wilton Manor's bar crawl. So I think I definitely plan to show up for some of that because, you know, I'm just right in South Beach. So um, if you want more info, go to Miami Beach Brothers. Again, that's B-R-U-T-H-A-Z. Dot com, And if you plan on going to any of it, definitely let me know because, like I said, I'm in the area and stuff. And if you listen to my podcast and whatever, I would definitely like to meet up and, you know, talk in person. Because, like I said, I'm about to face-to-face. So just let me know. And I'm easy to find on the interwebs. It's at Craig's Pop Life on Twitter. If a bitch is about anything, a bitch is about a brand. So at Craig's Pop Life on Twitter or Craig's Pop Life at gmail.com. I keep it real simple. And just for a little background on Miami Beach Brothers, because I know they throw parties in, obviously they throw parties in Miami Beach. It seems like for some reason, I'm always out of town for all the big gay events. So I've never actually been to one of their events. I, I've probably only been to like one Miami Beach Pride since I've been there. I know I was out of town for this year. I've never done the white party. I probably would never do that anyway, because I'm not really a circuit party person, but I've never even been in town for that, so I miss all the shit. So that's why this one I might make a point to be at, just because I ain't never there for anything. But anyway, Miami Beach Brothers was founded in 06, and their goal, according to their website, is to build an educational and informative platform for the LGBTQ community to participate in a high-energy, intimate, and interactive event. So that's definitely something I can support. So like I said, if you, it sounds fun to me, and I, like I said, they, I don't know them. I don't, they not giving me nothing. I'm just, you know, I'm just literally like it was organic. Like I was there. I was flipping through a magazine and probably when a stripper was on that I wasn't that into. And I saw it and I was like, hey, let me just share this on the podcast. Maybe some of my listeners will be down there or, or already down there going to come. Maybe I can meet some people. That's all. It's just very simple. Um, So let's move on to what we do. Talk about the pop culture of the week. And of course, there's no bigger event this week in the black gay pop culture world than, of course, return the return of Pose. So I hope everybody watch. Now, I hope y'all watch by, like, I hope I don't need to be no spoilering by Friday because the shit comes on a Tuesday. I thought it came on a Wednesday, so I was really lucky when I was on Twitter. Hold on, y'all need to sip on my Red Bull. I was really lucky that I was on Twitter and saw the thing. It was like, it's on tonight. I was like, tonight? So I watched it, and so y'all should be able to watch the pose so I can talk about I mean, I'm not going to recap or talk about it every week, I don't expect. But, um, you know, I hope I don't—so, yeah, there are spoilers, but you should have watched it by now anyway because it's damn near Friday. Um, or it is Friday. Y'all, you know it's 5.30 in the morning. This is literally the latest that I've actually— ever done the podcast <laughs> you know i was talking about doing friday thursday night this is really not thursday night but it is what it is and you know we do what we do so let me just say from the giddy up that i love pose okay and not only do i love it but i have you know sometimes you can watch something and you can tell what people put into it and i have no doubt that those involved aim for the highest quality okay so i just want that out there and I liked a lot of the season two premiere. Everybody done got their T.S. Madison, New Weave, 22 Inches Makeover. You know, everybody was looking good, looking, you know, season two-ish, more budget-ish. You know what I mean? Um, I think India Moore. I think she's the new SJP type fashion icon. Um, NJ Rodriguez, she's looking good. And I mean, every time I watch the show, like, even when I rewatch season one, I'm just like, she is really the show's MVP because they give her so much like exposition and stuff to say that if she wasn't just on her shit, it would come off mad corny 
and meh, because she's always one. The house community was boring, blah, blah, blah. You know, Madonna's Vogue is blah, 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 blah. You know, she's always, like, explaining something to you for a good paragraph. But the way she does it and the way that she makes her character, Blanca, so earnest, you don't really feel like it's, like, you're being, you know, told all this information. And that's skill. So I I really marvel um, at her doing that. And also just... um. And I also think that she is the one that really pulls you in in the first season, too. I think you think you're going to um, – what's the boy's name? The one that got kicked out of the house. and what, I don't even remember his name. But, you know, Damon? But I think it's Damon. But anyway, you know, you think that he's going to be the one you follow through. But quickly it becomes, I think, the one that I identify most with was Blanca, you know, just out here in these streets trying to make it with these obstacles and, you know, you trying to help people, but at the same time, you need to help yourself. And, you know, it's just, everything's going on. I, that's the one I related to, you know, so she was kind of my entry into the show. Um, but like I say, everybody's looking good. Cubby's still looking hockey fuckable. You know, I mean, I, I that boy is cute as a motherfucker. Like, I'm always on his Instagram. I forget what his real name is because I just go to his Instagram. You know how you forget your friend's numbers because you just push their name. It's like, I, he just pops up on my feed. But whatever his name is, and I'll remember for a future week, he's cute. And his Instagram feed is hot. Um, and I finally see what people see in, um, what's his name? Poppy. Like, I, I see that now where I didn't really see that before. And, you know... Now, I, I feel like he's, like, fashion. Like, I feel like I want to see him in fashion spreads in V-Man and, you know, Arena Home and just a whole um nine. So, like I said, everybody's looking good. And in addition to that, you know, um, what I feel like the creative team is aiming for the highest quality. I can also tell that the creative team really understands the importance and the responsibility of representing a marginalized community especially one that has been largely misrepresented or under unrepresented, you know? And that's no easy task because you have bitches like me that is part of the community and that's been around and is watching with my little Sherlock Holmes, um, what you call magnifying glass all up in the screen just because I know I lived through that era. I know a lot of people that were with that. I look side by side, you know, and that were with me during that era ain't here no more. Uh, so, I mean, I just feel like, so, yeah, you talking about the 80s and 90s. You talking about an era that, like, my real, like, 20s youth and stuff. Then, yeah, yeah, I'm investing. I'm watching real ass close. And I really feel like they um, are brave for taking on that challenge. And I think for the most part, they really rise to the fucking occasion i mean i think they rise to the occasion with the elegance of a fucking ball gown i mean they think they really do the damn thing and what i mean by that is like elegance is when stuff doesn't shit doesn't seem forced you know what i mean like it's just flows beautifully like a ball gown like a train whatever and i feel like that's most of the way that they are able to handle um representing the community and next let me say that as a writer myself, you know, I done ran my resume down. Um, I understand the difficulty of trying to tell stories that reach a mass audience. But while at the same time, you're trying to infuse the story with a sense of history. And, um, you know, especially history that's often gone undocumented. So, like, like when I did my Luther Vandross biography, you know, yes, it was about Luther. And that was the most important thing. But at the same time, you know... There's not a whole lot of books out here on, like, R&B and just the history of R&B and R&B singers and all this kind of stuff. And also, Luther was so influenced by other people. So, yeah, you get some black music history in Luther. And, yeah, I did feel like, okay, if this is my one time to speak on this subject, I need to make sure that all these people are represented even a little bit because this is, you know, this their history, their names need to be recorded. Because the way I feel is like, you know, somebody might read my book and like might read a line about LaBelle or some, or Shaka Khan or something like that 30 years from now. And maybe that will inspire them to do the research of themselves and look into that person. So I definitely feel, you know, I'm all about naming names and putting stuff out there. Same thing with All Like a Bear, you know. You read it, it's a memoir. People think it's fun and all that kind of stuff. But I did, and you do get a, 
you knew get your gay history in there. You get your DC gay history specifically, and you also get an argument advocating sex work um, and the importance of sex work and why sex work should be decriminalized and all of that. Those things didn't necessarily have to be in the book, but I felt the responsibility of having those in the book because, like I said, it was my platform and these are things that I have to say. So I understand and appreciate that that's a balancing act because those are things that you have to do without making it seem like you're making people, um, you know, eat their um, vegetables or whatever. So I think that they do that very well and the shit ain't easy. Um and then you might say, if you were sitting here, if we were to meet someplace, you might say, well, what does a fictional TV show got to do with history anyway? Like, why does the fuck, why, like, why does it matter how accurate a, a fictional um, work is to what really went down? And I would argue that especially for communities who, whose histories have gone largely undocumented or erased, talking about gay people, talking about black people. Um, talking about women, um, fiction is sometimes even more important than what we have in the history books because the history books wasn't written by us, okay? There's, or there's so little about us in the history books or it's so misrepresented, you feel me? So sometimes all we got is fiction and the power of our imaginations in reconstructing how things might have been and how lives might have been lived from the perspective of those people that lived them, because that's not the perspective from which the official history was written. So our imaginations become power, and the fictional representation becomes very powerful. And there was a really, really great essay um, that came out like last week on this website called Catapult. And like I said, I'll put all these links and stuff on my um, on the website. Um, but it's called Speculating on Queer Past to Achieve a Queer Eternity for my Tio Cano, and it's written by Marcos Gonzalez. And he, I know y'all can hear, let me turn the pages, y'all. See, I, I'm even so, I print stuff out on the web, I can't be reading stuff all along on the web, but let me, where's the part I wanted to talk about? It do be kind of long. Oh, you know what? Shit, that's not even the right thing. I'm sorry, y'all. Um, But yeah, he picks up on the work of Sadia Hartman, and she has this book called Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval. And I put that on the um, Amazon shop and books that I talk about. But anyway, just talking about the importance of speculation and the imagination in recapturing the um, lives of people from, my, from marginalized communities. And so he's writing about his uncle who I think he knew was gay and who passed of AIDS, but he doesn't know anything about his uncle's life. So he's saying, how do I speculate on the life of my T.O. Cano? Speculation becomes a way in which to bring to life that which was never made to come to life, made to be stuck forever as a police report, a sociological survey, a philanthropist diary. What do we do with bodies who lived and died? and left no personal records behind, no notebooks, no diaries, no letters, no photos. Let's speculate on queer paths, past, um, caring for those who are dead, who are dying, who might have, who might not have ever even lived, caring for the queer elders who survived through those years of such unfathomable loss, caring for the queers of color, the poor queers, the queers strutting down city blocks and the queers dancing down unpaved country roads, the queers who were never even given a chance to be as queer as they needed. Imagine it. So I thought that was very, very powerful. Like I said, I just love this essay and it just was particularly resonant to me in terms of thinking about the, this episode of um, Post because I had just read it. And... um you know, one thing I thought the show did beautifully kind of in that sense of like imagining the queer past is just the opening um, scene at Heart Island, um, you know, that's off the Long Island Sound. I ain't never heard of it before. So I was really like, wow, this is educating me on something. Apparently it was once a training ground for quote unquote colored army troops 
And then later it was a spot for, um, like a quarantine spot for people with yellow fever and tuberculosis. And then starting in the late 80s, it became a mass burial ground for unclaimed and unidentified bodies of people who died from um, complications from AIDS. So I thought that was a show representing um, functioning at its best because it was a scene that was both, I felt education was educational to me. Um, and it was also deeply moving and very within the spirit of the characters. Everything was organic with it. And I just thought that was a really, really beautiful moment in fact, as I was researching it, I found out that there's a um, project, the Heart Island Project, that's trying to collect the stories of those that are buried in the mass graves. So to find out about that, you can go to Heart, that's H-A-R-T, like um, the old Heart to Heart series, which y'all used to watch that with um, Robert Wagner. What's that? What was the woman's name? Anyway, um, like Heart, it's like Heart to Heart, but... 90% of y'all listeners probably don't even know what I'm talking about when I say heart to heart. But anyway, Heart Island, H-A-R-T, island.net. And you can even donate to the project with any old amount on the good old PayPal. So that's all there. So I do represent, I do um, recommend that. That's heartisland.net. And you guys, excuse me, because I need another sip of my Red Bull. I need a damn sponsorship at this point. But you know, DJ Khaled got an energy drink. That was his whole thing with, um with um you know him counting his album sales above tyler the creator because he sold i guess you got a free download the album with his energy drink and he's from miami maybe i should just hit him up and i'll be the gay representative of his energy drink shit all i need to do is stay up it's not like i'm here for the taste but anyway um so now i know you're going well what is craig building up to he's been talking about what he likes about post so damn much. what is he building up to you know that he didn't like about the show and it's not all like I'm I'm really saying the stuff that I like about the show in true appreciation. Okay. But um my main issue which is the um season two premiere had to do with the AIDS activism storyline. And this is coming from a was there bitch. You know, like I was there <laughs> during the time I was that was there bitch. So a lot of this is coming from how the show related to my memories, my understanding of really what was going on in the communities and also the people I knew. So like I said, I'm just saying my truth. Um, but one, my, one of my big things was just um, the way it represented becoming an activist because the internal emotional journey in becoming an activist, that is a season, if not series long process. That ain't no story beat. You know what I mean? And for me, the quickness that Praytel went from going to one act up meeting to become a full on activist, I mean, it reminded me of those memes. You know, those memes that go like before and after memes that goes like reads one feminist book and then it's a picture of somebody, you know, or reads one Black History Month book and then some, it felt to me like a meme, like, you know, because it just wasn't, um, realistic and the thing that really struck me is like coming of age you know in the late 80s and the 90s i knew tons of black gay men of pray tell's generation who were just like pray tell and all these men were like older you know black gay uncles for me on the scene people i would talk to people would give me advice and all that kind of stuff and they were certainly not a part of the activist generation or even sort of the organized gay movement pre AIDS, because it's like these men, their entire mode of survival was based on minding they fucking business. <laughs> that was what they were about all day, every day. They minded their fucking business and they weren't trying to get involved in anything. All they were trying to do is do them. And to me, from the beginning of watching Pray Tell, he always reminded me of that type of person like he has that day job i think he works at the department store or something like that then he has his ball life and stuff and this is how that's exactly how every single black gay man of that generation that i knew during that time was exactly like that you know everything was compartmentalized their work life was their work life their family life was their family life their gay social life in the bars and the club was their gay social life and these worlds never fucking mixed and i would go so far as to say their gay social life 
was kept entirely separate in most cases of, of the men I know. Like I said, I'm just speaking from my truth. Of the men I know, their gay social life was c- kept separately from their gay sexual life because they ain't want you to know about the trade they was fucking. You know what I mean? They wanted to keep that shit on the low. So it was like, that's just the truth of the situation. So I'm not saying that Pray Tell could not have become an activist, but if the character was true to the black gay men of his community and his generation that I knew, there ain't no way that it was going to happen that quickly and not without a lot of internal struggle. Because like I said, these men were about minding their fucking business. And the other thing is about it, the black gay men of like the Pray Tell generation and stuff, these are men that came of age during like the civil rights, you know, civil rights era and all that kind of stuff. AIDS was what it was and AIDS was a deadly threat. AIDS wasn't the first deadly threat that they ever faced in life as black gay men. Do you know what I mean? So it's like they faced the challenge, but they wasn't shook by AIDS like it was something to do because these men have been facing life or death challenges from the day they were born. So that was another kind of thing, too. It's like for a lot of for a lot of, I think, particularly white gay men, you know, there was a step where once they were used to privilege and once they became gay, they got their privilege knocked down a little bit and they saw how um s- how some of us are treated that aren't part of the major- majority community okay right now then once they were gay and they had a disease an infectious disease then they really shit really started getting real for them because that was an experience that they had never felt before they had never been on the margins of society like that for black gay men that wasn't the case because Black gay men have always been on the margins of society. So it was just a different thing. So I just, I felt like the way Pray Tell just did that jump and stuff, it just didn't really ring true to me. Okay. Um, and the other thing that bothered me, or another thing that bothered me, was just how quickly the House of Evangelista got involved in the organized direct action at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Because I thought that really grossly misrepresented activists. You don't just take part in a public, in an organized direct action like that, and that's your first activist thing to do. You don't just go to an ACT UP meeting, and the next thing you're in, you're part of a coordinated effort in the church, one of the biggest, you know, sort of direct action disruptions that they take in part of. Bitch, you better learn how to stand outside a building and shout something and hold a sign first. You know what I'm saying? That, that levels to this activism shit. You don't just step up. And then all of a sudden start um, disrupting a church ceremony. So I thought that that was just a lot. That was a lot of me to, because, um, you know, direct, and I'm not even, I can't even front. Like, I've been on the front lines or shit like that. All I know is people that I know that do frontline type shit. And I know that they go through trainings. I know they, okay, what you going to do? When you going to do it? When you going to, yeah, when you going to throw the blood or throw the water? What, when you going to do that? What you going to do when you get arrested? How you going to lay? You make your body go limp. What you going to have in your pockets? Are your pockets going to be sewn up? Is your pockets? They, all of that shit is like a part of activism. So to me, you know, I'm not trying to say that it was, um, I can't even think of the word, so I can't even say what I'm gonna was gonna say that I didn't think it was. But you know, I just felt like that was kind of really a misrepresentation of of activism. And but related to my previous point, that activism is a process. It's a process that I think you have to go through internally and emotionally, especially from somebody of pray tells generation. But then at the same time, once you come to the point of okay, I want to take action, then bitches about you need to sit down and learn how to do this. And how people have been doing this and exactly what to do. You can't just, oh, I'm decided I'm, you know, that I'm mad about this issue on Tuesday and then you're going to be doing something like that. That's just not the way the shit works. Like, again, in terms of the stuff that I know, in terms of the people I know that do the shit, that's just not very realistic. So that bugged me, too. Thirdly, um, there was just the larger issue of the show just solely representing AIDS activism through ACT UP, you know, and then solely representing ACT UP through the cathedral protests for a number of reasons. Um, And this is just something, this is, you know, I told y'all that I'm reading this book. It's about my friend um, Essex Hempel, and it's also about um, Michael Callan. It's called um, uh, 
Hold Tight Gently, Michael Cal and Essex Temple, and The Battle of AIDS. And it's by Martin Duberman. And it's really just been putting me on. You know, I'm not trying to front. I'm not trying to say that. Had I, like that essay I read, you know, had I not been reading certain things, doing certain things, I might have had the same critique of the show. So I'm not trying to front, like, but I'm just saying, based upon what I'm, like, learning and stuff, these are the issues that I have with the show. Because you can only be, you can only meet a work where you are, right? And this just happens to be where I am. And, like, you know, I'm really getting schooled to the fact that there was just a whole lot of AIDS activism before there was even an AIDS. You feel me? Before they even had the name for shit, before, when it was still, when people were, doctors were still debating what role HIV had in AIDS and what did it really, there was AIDS activism then and people really, you know, having dialogues with the medical community, but then also trying to empower people with AIDS, developing the concept of people with AIDS. That wasn't just something that existed. That was something that a term that people had to create in order to empower themselves with the medical community. So there was a whole lot of stuff going on way before um, ACT UP. But I think ACT UP becomes almost synonymous with AIDS activism because it was very media savvy and it was also very self-consciously media savvy because a lot of people involved in ACT UP had jobs in, you know, magazines and graphic design in all of that, in public, you know, they were people that were doing that kind of work so they could put that to their activism. But I think what that does sometimes is that it obscures, um, I said that real weird, it obscures, um, the work that other people have done. Because, like, the more I read about Michael Callan, um, who I wasn't even that hip to, like, I knew him, I knew he was an AIDS activist, but I just didn't know all that much. And um, he was really badass. Like, he um, was very much on the front. Like, he was very much, just like people like Essex Temple and Joseph Beam and the black gay men I'm talking about, Michael Callan, he very much took the lead um, of feminists and feminists of color in tr- in understanding social issues and kind of in using that lens for society. So he was a white gay man, but he was very much, you know, he would fight to get women involved in certain trials. He would, you know, stand up for the rights of people of color. So he was really bad. And like, he was just one example. And he had kind of an off an on relationship with supporting ACT UP and, um, you know, with them supporting his efforts and everything like that. But he was also about that direct action life, but just in a different way. But we don't really hear about his direct action. Do you know what I mean? So this is something he did. Um, He would go up in the bathhouses. Okay. And then this is from his diary. He said, whenever I see two men about to fuck, I shamelessly approach to look for evidence of a condom. I'm not averse to reaching my hand down and feeling for the rubber band-like end of a condom near the base of the top's penis. If I don't see or feel a condom, I wordlessly reach into my pocket, produce one, rip open the package, shake out the condom, produce some lube, tap the top on the shoulder, smile, and offer him a condom. Nine times out of ten, the top took it and thanked me. That's some motherfucker direct action for real, for real, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, like I'm saying, I, I understand, and you know, even in my terms of being with the being in the um, community and, and understand what was going on at the time, my understanding of direct action was very much shaped by the larger media presence of ACT UP. But the more that I learn about shit, is like there was a lot of other shit um, going on too, stuff that I think definitely deserves um more attention and the other thing i really like about Callan, like just reading this book which i only read because of essex but like i'm really really um appreciating the work of michael Callan is that even though he promoted safe sex to the point where he was all on somebody else's dick he don't know feeling to see whether or not there was a condom on it which is a lot which is very extra and a lot but anyway you know he was never anti-sex and never um anti-hoeing and he really felt like the conservative strand of kind of anti-sex that was coming in with um, with people's awareness of AIDS. Like he was really worried about that. So this is another um, this is another excerpt from his diary. He says, "What breaks my heart 
It's my sense that the vast majority of gay men and lesbians appear to be in essential agreement with their oppressors, at least about the married and missionary part of appropriate forms of sexual expression, which make them virtually indistinguishable sociologically from their conservative suburban heterosexual counterparts. Many gay men, just like our parents in the sense of wanting a marriage, house in the suburbs, career, and the right to dip into the gay sexual revolution now and then. I'm going to say that again. Many gay men want a house, just like our parents, want a, want a marriage, a house in the suburbs, career, and the right to dip into the gay sexual revolution now and then. I'm continuing. I just had to run that back. Uh, I want to defend the right of gay men and lesbians to explore radical forms of sexuality. That is, sex which isn't married, nor essentially missionary, the kind that used to occur in bathhouses, back rooms, and private sex parties, specifically non-monogamous group sexual expression. So I just thought that, like, again, I just feel like that kind of activism we don't necessarily know about because maybe like that kind of direct action didn't like look really cute on a logo on a t-shirt and that kind of activism didn't like go that well with a pair of jean shorts and some Doc Martens, but that was also really important. It also seems to me, you know, thinking of, I don't know, like it just, it kind of seems to me like Blanca would kind of be that person in the bathhouse checking dicks and stuff, you know, if that, but I know there were a lot of issues in terms of, you know, um, transgender access to those gay spaces too so i'm i know that that would be an issue too and i also know there's a lot of issues with um transgender access to a lot of these um gay male activist spaces that i'm talking about too so i definitely recognize that as being a possible issue that the show was dealing with um but the other thing is like one thing the show i think did a great job with with the aids activism is representing the important role of women in act up in aids activism in general that was great but it really sidestepped the issues that people of color, like those in the House of Evangelista, had with ACT UP. And this particularly bothered me when Blanca said something like um, that everybody needs to take part in the ACT UP protest because we need to let them know that we care about us. And, you know, there was actually a lot of organizing being done in New York City at that time by people of color around AIDS that had nothing to do with ACT UP. There was, for one, just one example, Gay Men of African Descent, which was founded in 1986. You know, so there was stuff that could have been in the community that that they could have represented, you know, without doing the big ACT UP Catholic Church type thing. And among activists of colors, including my friend Essex, who I talk about all the time, there was definitely a discussion about whether or not putting our energies as black gay men um, into groups like ACT UP, whether or not that was the best way of, like Blanca said, taking care of us. And this is from an interview he did. Um, he said, I don't expect ACT UP and Queer Nation to march in the neighborhoods that I know. It's not as if ACT UP doesn't have my support as a black gay man. Let me read this all again. I messed this all up. Okay. I don't expect ACT UP and Queer Nation to march in the neighborhoods that I know. It's not as if ACT UP and Queer Nation don't have my support as a gay man and that we can't work together when our goals are parallel. But I have to take care of home. I just can't sit back. That's what I mean by about coming home. My sexuality isn't so big a thing that it's going to overwhelm my desire to see us as black people live and survive. Okay, so there were a lot of people in the community that were, and especially considering that AIDS was disproportionately affecting um, the minority community anyway, not necessarily just the minority gay community. There were a lot of people that were very on that fubu for us, by us type shit that you know we're really doing something and it really didn't have anything to do with um act up so i really would have loved to seen like maybe Blanc and them organizing you know uh aids education block party in the bronx or like bringing education to the ball or community or just something like that that didn't necessarily have to be um connected to a majority white organization 
And it would have been just as historically accurate because there were a lot of organic groups of people of color doing work around AIDS at that particular time. All right, y'all. Now, lastly, my issue is with the um, Catholic cathedral protest representing the work of ACT UP just in general. Because just for a little bit of history, you know, ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, was formed in 1987, largely as a response to government inaction on getting drugs into bodies. Okay, because at the time, and like I said, this was the time that they were still debating what causes AIDS, what's going to treat it, how, how to build, you know, how to retain the T cells. And they, this shit was medical debates. Okay, this shit was not, wasn't no cocktail, wasn't no, this is the definitive treatment plan. Like this was all just experimental. And so what happens was you, people would hear about certain drugs and stuff like that, but then the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, would be dragging their um, feet on, you know, getting that approved for people to be able to take it. Okay. On top of all that, when the drug companies finally did get something approved and they knew it worked for AIDS, then the price was super, super sky high. So see, that was what ACT UP was really organized with first to use a collective power to get against these forces that were really stopping drugs from getting into bodies, drugs that could potentially save lives. Okay, so that's why, like, some of the um, first ACT UP protests, like, they, they protested on Wall Street in 1987. So that was directly, you know, trying to say something against the drug drug companies that were gouging prices. And then in 88, they um, protested at the Food and Drug Administration. Again, that was directly related to, like, hurry up, y'all. People are dying. Can y'all please run this drug through your little bureaucratic whatnot so my friend doesn't have to die? Can you can y'all think you can do that? That's what those protests were about. Now the St. Patrick's Cathedral protest in 1989 was a little bit that was represented in the show, and that was a little bit different because it wasn't as directly related to getting the drugs in the bodies. You know, it had more to do with the Catholic Church's homophobia in general, the sort of outside influence that Cardinal O'Connor had on things like safer sex education um, and condom distribution in New York City's public schools, and then just in general, his influence on the Pope and then how that affected AIDS policies globally. So there were definitely some big, important issues at stake in that particular protest, but it wasn't as directly related to what a lot of people thought was the initial um, purpose of ACT UP, which was getting them drugs in, into the bodies. Do you know what I mean? So, And it actually caused a lot of internal strife because some people were like, you know, I may agree with this, but that ain't it. Protesting to the churches and stuff like that, that's not saving anybody's life today. Do you know what I mean? That's more of a general issue. So some people splintered off and decided that they weren't going that route. Other people were like, no, homophobia is the whole issue because if people cared more about gay and lesbian, LGBTQ, you know, IA plus lives, then they would be more proactive on AIDS and stuff like that. Like the general issue is that gay life, queer life is devalued, therefore all this other stuff falls in play. So that was another mode of thinking. And a lot of those people went and formed Queer Nation in 1990, dealing with those issues of like homophobia and anti-gay violence and all of that kind of stuff. So this church protest, to me and to a lot of people, almost represented the splintering of ACT UP in a way because it was kind of like it was going in a different direction from the way that it was initially. And it caused a lot of people to leave. You know, it really was a very divisive particular protest. So for that to be the protest that represents ACT UP within the context of the show, I just think was um, very problematic. You know, so what do I do? I'm left with all these thoughts. I love the show. I enjoy the show. But I had this. And, you know, I really don't want to be that, you know... Why aren't they do this? Well, why? They, well, you know they could have done this. Well, why aren't they do that? Because the thing about it is that why ain't they voice is never in your head when you are creating something. As a person who is a writer and creates shit, I know that 
when you sit down to create something, or in this case, when you're collaboratively writing a script and doing costumes and doing music and people acting, you're doing that. You are always doing that with the intention to do the best job you can. So you're doing that with the intention to educate people in the best way they can and also entertain them and everything like that. So I just don't even like to be that person because you can always, you know, complain. And that just always bothers me when people are like, well, they should have because that should have is just not part of the artistic process because in the artistic process, you are doing the best that you can do in the moment. Don't nobody set out. That's the thing. Don't nobody set out to create something shitty. Don't nobody set out to create something. I'm not saying that in any way this was it, but I'm just saying in general how people, I think, often receive works of art. It's like they almost take it personally. Like somebody created something to offend them personally. Like somebody made a song or something to piss them off, to shit on their day. And it's like, no, most times from a creative point of view, most creators create stuff that's a true expression of their artistry and that they truly want people to like. There can be a hundred zillion things that get in the way that may not allow their original um, intention to come through on the work as you receive it, or that shit just might not be for you. It might not be your taste or whatever. But I think that most people, creative people sit down with the intention of doing something good, doing something important. And so that's why I don't want to be another voice um, just, you know, kind of criticizing from that level. And you know, I just feel like, and I also appreciate, you know, all the efforts. So I just feel like for me, and this is just a challenge for everybody in whatever platform you have, you know, whatever you talk to people. Like, I feel like I just, because I know the people in post have good intentions and stuff like that, like, I just have to educate myself as I did to for, for this podcast and looked up shit that, you know, and like that is an act that I can do to empower myself that's related to the show, but it doesn't have necessarily have to be grounded in a critique of what they should have done. And then I can use my platform, which is this, which I thank every one of you that has given me this platform to spread what I know. So at the end of the day, that's what I think, you know, we should just learn how to be in that mode, like respond to what people are doing by going and say okay well let me research more of this and just because you know more of it doesn't necessarily mean you need to turn around and go well now they weren't shit because they didn't say this and that you know more of it so now use that as an opportunity to share that information with somebody else using the show as a jumping point you know what i mean i think we have to we just have to shift the way that we um i think the tendency to tear down shows that are trying to say something and have good intentions about our communities and kind of like say, well, okay, well, instead of spending my energies just critiquing this and going this, let me spend my energies, you know, learning more about the situation and then trying to share that in whatever way that I can. So that's just my, that's just where I'm coming from. So that's why I was saying like, I'm not hating on this at all. These are the issues that I have. And I'm bringing up these issues basically to, Hey, you may agree with me or not agree with me. I'm, you know, trying to start a dialogue around these things that I'm bringing up. So maybe, you know, maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. But in any event, you now know that if you did know before, I know a lot of people know before, but just to know that, you know, there were alternatives to the things that were going on. There was AIDS activism going on in different ways. There was AIDS activism going on among people of color in different ways. And, you know... That's also part of the story as well as – that's also part of the story that the people um, behind Pose were trying to tell. And I think for the most part, they did a very good job in doing that. So anyway, y'all, I'm done out of breath, done out of note cards, done out of everything. I really wanted to um, talk about Black Godfather this week, but I just – I can't say another word. So I really I hope everybody watches Black Godfather about – Clarence Avon, who just, you will just marvel. Like, if you think you knew everything about Clarence Avon, you probably will still learn a whole lot of shit about Clarence Avon that you didn't know. Um, he's responsible for so much in terms of black entertainment and in terms of just black, blackness, you know, black political, black everything. Um, so I would definitely recommend watching that. And I'm going to speak on it next week. And um, let me see, what else do I have to say? Um, 
I done draw my last card. So you know how we do, like I always do at this time. Until next week, be cool, be kind, be creative, and in the words of my fave. All right, y'all. I love y'all, and I truly appreciate you riding with me um, for whatever time you've been riding with me. But for, for y'all who've given me 20 episodes, and I'm going to keep doing this, you know, I really appreciate it. So, love y'all. Bye. Y'all, it's my 20th motherfucking show, and I done messed up my outro. So, you know, I don't, I don't edit shit. I keep it real. I you know, y'all know how I do what I do. So we're just going to do it one more again. So like we always do at this time, until next week, be cool, be kind, be creative. And in the words of my fave, be your damn self. <laughs> All right, y'all. See you at episode number 21. Love y'all. Bye.